Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Canada's population reached 40 million a week ago, I think it was. Canada's expecting 500,000 immigrants per year by 2025. And in the first three months of 2023, 145,000 immigrants settled in Canada. That's the largest number for a three-month period since 1972. Yet 15 to 20% of immigrants leave Canada within 10 years of arriving here. So what's going on here? Richard Curlin, immigration lawyer in Vancouver, advisor to both the federal and Quebec governments on the issue of immigration. Where do we start, Richard? Well, let's start at the very beginning, because that's a very good place to start. We want Canada not only to serve, as a model to the world on how to get along and live together, we want a successful, democratic, fair society. And to do that, we've done something that no other country on this planet has thought to do. Before making a move on the immigration chessboard, what Canada did differently is to spend millions of dollars in research. And You know, you measure twice, cut once. We now have the secret sauce on how to do things right when it comes to immigration. No floodgates, no social Darwin (laughs) rules. Uh, You act smart. You select carefully people pre-screened to keep out the baddies. People with the skills we need for the future. The people who are going to pay our pensions our education, our medical services. And um, (laughs) the devil may be in the details, but over the last decade, we've sorted it out and we're about to exponentially increase Canada's population size in the years to come. So the question has been, are we taking in too many immigrants looking at the housing challenges in this country, the healthcare challenges, this healthcare system is under massive strain, hundreds of thousands of surgeries are backlogged, and the social programs, the expenses of the social programs are enormous, and they're under great stress. So it's 500,000. What's the case to say to convince Canadians and to convince the immigrants, because 15 to 20 percent leave after entering this country within 10 years, how do you make the case that it's that's a good fit? Well, the, the case is made uh, first. Let's let's do medicine. <laughs> this, this government has decided to prioritize uh, the human capital with medical-related skills. So we dip into the pool of prospective immigrants and we take out the nurses, the physicians, the attendant care people we need to take care of us. When it comes to that half million mark, that's kind of a bogus figure. Because, you know, when I ask people just here and there, 500,000 people, they say, yeah, how are they going to get here? And I have to correct everyone by saying, look, they're already here. Yeah, you've said that before in this program. Yeah. And so because of that, um, keep your eye not on the number of permanent residents, people who are awarded permanent resident status in the year. Keep your eye on the number of temporary status people here. That's what you look at because they don't have to report to parliament on on the number of uh, foreign students or foreign workers. Uh, The bureaucrats and their good ones can select at will uh, numbers. There's no cap. There's no limit on intake for the temporary status population. And for our housing, it's not the immigrants Uh, who are adding to the 
demand side, it's the temporary status people. The temporary status crowd has grown in the millions while the immigrant crowd grows in literally the hundred thousands. So for the short term, yeah. What, what, how does that make a difference? How, does it, how do those numbers make a difference? Well, in, 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 uh, in, in most of our major uh, urban areas, the universities are located core downtown or core center. And that means students have to find accommodation and get to school on time. So no surprise to see that by placing our foreign students in the overly congested uh, occupied apartment dwelling areas, you're going to see rents go up, housing becomes less affordable. Uh, that's not good. What is happening, what is beginning to happen over the last two, three years, it's called the Hinterland Express. People are quickly discovering that they can get cheaper education, housing, have an easier work time by not locating to the main areas, Toronto, uh, Vancouver, Calgary, uh, what have you. It's now the hinterland areas, the secondary cities that are experiencing the immigrant touch. And that distribution of the new population is the wave of the future. Our immigration rules are jigged, if not rigged outright, to prefer as a priority newcomers who are settling in those areas. And that's what's going to save Canada in the long run. We're not going to have silo cities where we just have to build upwards to the sky, high density dwellings in order to sustain our population growth. We're going as capitalism intended, where supply and demand can get together in a good way. And that means the hinterland. Uh, so uh, how is it going to work and help all of us? What's different in the 2020s for the first time is that we have an incredibly high uh, proportion of foreign-born amongst the Canadian domestic population, and people come from everywhere. Now, if you take the time to go into the elementary high schools, uh, if not the, uh, the uh, uh, early uh, university years, it's mini United Nations. It's the norm. And here's why this is so, so valuable. In the old days, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you look at the stranger aghast and perhaps afraid of an unknown situation because you can't relate. You didn't grow up when you were growing up with, quote unquote, foreigners. Not so in, in, in our day. It's perfectly normal to have neighbors and friends and family uh, from various countries around the planet. And what does that really mean? Really mean what sets us apart. The core of our Canadian value is that we get along, we get along, we get along. If there are troubles, leave them on the outside. And by getting along... Our law enforcement uh, costs decrease, racial tensions in the street, political tensions in the street. This isn't. Uh, no, but we see we see the demo we see demonstrations, uh, large demonstrations where people have brought their troubles from from other countries here. I mean, that's not uh, not an unknown. When your perspective, or your no, I won't say perspective clients, but when your clients who are looking at Canada as a place to come to see that number of fifteen to twenty percent leave within 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 ten years, well educated and skilled professionals, what do you say to them? Um, well, uh, bon voyage, and we'll see you uh, on your return. What happens is this: there are some immigrants who plan uh, to have their family here in Canada. And uh, their kids are born Canadian. They're not considered immigrants. So the uh, the children stay. You're not and, talking uh, about birth tourism, are you? Oh, no. Lord, no. Okay. Um, okay. That, fortunately, because of COVID, fell off the cliff. Okay. Um, these are, these are uh, your, your regular immigrant families, uh, economic class. Uh, they, they, they come here. They live here. They start families here. Uh, so for economic reasons and social reasons, uh, uh, the, the, the statistics accurate, they will go to greener economic pastures. The classic example for uh, Western Canada are, are the folks who uh, came from um, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, 
uh, after some time in Canada, they realized they can make more money and pay significantly less tax if they move back home and got a, a salary bump as a result of the value of their Canadian work experience. Others leave because they just can't afford to live here. And I'm talking Vancouver <laughs> as that number one uh, problem area. Uh, the other reasons are, are, are largely personal. Uh, 10 years later, uh, or 15 years after you've, you've immigrated, very often you'll have an elderly parent that needs taken care of. And if you're the only one uh, possible, well, it's home you go. You have to do it. Uh, the disgruntled, the failures, people like that, few and far between, um, many will return because they can't take out Canadian citizenship, which is true if you're from a country like China or India or others that don't allow dual citizenship. But um, overall, I don't know about you, but I I'm thinking 80% retention rate is gosh darn good. See, I don't know how that compares with other countries. How does that compare with the United States? Well, I, I tried to find uh, stats for uh, U.S. Uh, or, or uh, these days it's uh, France, U.K., Germany you, you begin to stare at. Um, and um, I don't think they keep their data the way we keep our data. There are no exit controls uh, legally in the United States for people. Uh, and so it's really hard to track. You can't use the tax system. It, it's not reliable. Uh, so the data is too weak. But I do look at OECD. But it shouldn't be. This is a hugely important yeah. issue. Government should have that data. Uh, yeah. If uh, government wants to pay for the data, we do and we do. Uh, and, and we benefit as a result of that choice. We, there are also, don't forget, uh, kind of exit interviews periodically undertaken by academics and policy analysts of the people who uh, are known to be leaving or who have left and, and uh, end up on radar. Uh, and again, it's nothing unusual. We are living in a global capital market where the free flow of goods and services and people is essential. Uh, so this may well be simply the system doing its work and um, people are making their choices based on the best outcomes okay. for themselves. So, so I, I have just over a minute here. Um, let me ask you this. Half a million people entering this country by 2025 annually. I know you said most of them are already here, but I'll go with the government line. So half a million. Is there is there any difficulty attracting these people in the first place? Um, whether they're here already or, or not, is it difficult attracting immigrants to Canada when you have so many other countries, Western nations, who are also trying to attract skilled professional immigrants? Well, fact is, the number of applications vastly outstrips the supply of visas. And it's well, that answers it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a reason why we're among the best in the world. People know it. And our future is bright. Our future is bright. I've never heard you anything but totally optimistic about the future. And, and you know, we, we need that. Um, yeah. It, it's essential. You know, you, you can walk all day with a frown and look down. What's the point? Every day's a gift. And live every day as if it's your last and that night as if it's New Year's Eve. Enjoy this journey. <laughs> you're, uh, you're a precious soul. Richard, I, I always enjoy the conversations. Thank you so much for taking the time today. And happy oh, no, Canada no, 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 Day pleasure. weekend. Thank you. <laughs> happy Canada Day weekend, Richard. Yep, you too. Email from Tony. What was that joke you told a while back about ignorance and apathy? I love to repeat this. Tony, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know and I don't care. That's it. What's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know, and I don't care. I care a lot about what happens in this country. And I was privileged to come here as a 13-year-old and become a Canadian citizen and learn about Canada, become part of the Canadian family, and try to contribute in my own way. And here we are today where I think we're really at a crossroads and we're hearing this more from, from listeners. 
But we're at a crossroads as well with how indigenous peoples in Canada are treated and how and the impact that indigenous peoples have on this country and its future. And they must have a really significant impact because they are such an integral part of the history, the presence, and the future of Canada. I have great respect for the young indigenous leader who joins us now. He's the former chief of Cowessus First Nation in Saskatchewan, Cadmus Delorme. You may be the former chief, but uh, the honorific stays with me. When I introduce you, I may have to introduce you as the former chief, but when I'm talking to you, I'll talk to you as, uh, as Chief Delorme. Is that okay? Thank you, Roy. That, that's fine. It just, it just comes with no signing privilege anymore. Well, I imagine there's a very interesting and stimulating future for you, Chief. You, uh, you bring a lot to the table, a great deal to the table. What's, what's your message to Canada and Canadians and about Canada on this Canada Day weekend? I wasn't inspired by the Prime Minister's message, but what's yours? Mm-hmm. Thank you, and, and thanks for the audience for giving me time to share on, on such an important matter. Uh, yesterday, Roy, my family and I celebrated Canada Day uh, with Canadians uh, in Treaty 4 territory at a town called Round Lake. It's, it's kind of by Cowessus, and uh, it was amazing. You've seen red shirts, you've seen orange shirts, you've seen Canada logos. Uh, we all shared in the fireworks at the end of the day, and my kids, Roy, were playing on the playground with Canadians, with Indigenous, with new Canadians, and, and that's Canada, just watching the kids play on on the playground. And, you know, to, to reflect on your question, uh, you know, in 2021, it was a real tough time in this country uh, to validate what we all inherited today as Canadians and Indigenous people. Uh, the Kamloops, the Merville, and now 16 other residential schools has confirmed their unmarked graves and are now doing their research. And, you know, today we are just all celebrating a country that's 160-some years old, uh, but also realizing that um, we have some work to do together as Canadians and Indigenous people. Is there a unified sense of purpose among First Nations? There is, Roy, and, and it's unified even with Canadians. Um, you know, there's many allies out there, uh, Canadians, there's many Indigenous people, um, you know, and the end goal is simple. Indigenous people want parity in this country with Canadians while our Indigenous worldview isn't tested anymore. And, you know, I don't, I've never met a Canadian that refused that or denied or debated with me about that. And, you know, the challenge is, Roy, is we're going to disagree on how to get there. And, you know, Indigenous to Indigenous, we're going to disagree on how to get there. Indigenous to Canadian, we're going to disagree, and Canadian to Canadian. But the end goal, Roy, I'll repeat it one more time. Indigenous people want parity in this country while our Indigenous worldview isn't tested anymore. And if I can add on one little 10 second, Indigenous people don't want pity. We don't want anybody to feel sorry for us. Like We, we just want to make sure we get to our parity. Yeah, I'm glad you said that um, because... And, and I asked you about whether there was a unified sense of purpose among First Nations. So I was going to extend that into including First Nations, provinces, and the national population. I left the national government out for my own reasons. Um, and I was just, con I just am concerned that we don't set our GPS to different compass points, that we all head in the same direction together. It's and I hear you saying that's happening. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's so many drivers going on in this country right now. You know, you've got uh, post-pandemic where, you know, our economy, we're, we're trying to get to uh, equilibrium again. We, we have uh, politics and politics has really, if I can speak very openly, how politics is, is, is kind of going in this country is, is a little too... Uh, I don't want to use the word polarization, but it's like getting to a point where I think politics needs to calm down a little bit. And, you know, we got other drivers. We got cultural impacts. We got social impacts. We got new Canadians that are arriving. Um, you know, we got international affairs and reconciliation. 
And, you know, two years ago in 2021, if we did a environmental scan in this country on what our priorities are, reconciliation probably would have been on the top in 2021. But in 2023, you know, we kind of as Canadians and Indigenous people focus on the uh, task at hand and what we find is the immediate. And maybe reconciliation is maybe not the top anymore. But I tell you, Roy, the more that we focus domestically on our internal as Canada and Indigenous people, the more our social and economic will lift and all Canadians and Indigenous people will feel a positive impact the more we better understand what truth and reconciliation means to all of us. So not to belabor a point, Chief DeLorme, but if I were today inside Cowess's First Nation, speaking to the people of Cowess's and asking them, what are the primary goals and objectives? What would I be hearing? What you yeah. just said, what you just told me? Uh, right. I, if I can get more specific, and this is what's amazing with your radio station, is we can have uncomfortable conversations and let's dissect, you know, what we all inherited. I'm going to say something, and, and all, uh, you know, audience, please remember, Indigenous people don't want pity. We don't want anybody to feel sorry for us. But as Indigenous to Indigenous, you know, with, with five, six generations of oppression, we've kind of become a little bit of our own worst enemies to each other at times. And we're beautiful people. Listen, we have beautiful culture. We have beautiful kinship. We, we, you know, but remember, we don't want pity or don't want anybody to feel sorry for us. But, you know, we kind of tend to manage poverty amongst each other now. Like, it's almost become a cultural norm to, like, the funerals and, you know, the, the um, you know, just, just the family, um, the opposite of vertical lineage, the family breakdowns and... When you would come to Cowes, we're beautiful First Nation, like 630 across this country, you know, but, you know, deep down, we're tired of managing poverty. Like, we want to lift this ceiling, and many Canadians and governments and business are helping us lift the ceiling. But the thing is, is it's only going at a pace that is beneficial to, you know, the betterment of Canada, if I can say it like that. And so, you know, the expectations are high. Um, but for Indigenous people, you know, if you were to come to Cowes tomorrow, Roy, you and I would probably go play golf, have some lunch, <laughs> and uh, go walk around and not show yeah. our beautiful uh, facilities and, and community. But at the same time, you would see that the, the patience is dwindling yeah. in regards to just the managing poverty mindset. Yeah, the only reason I chuckled when you said play golf, because I know you're a scratch golfer. <laughs> so uh, there would have to be strokes on every hole, including the par threes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because you said something when we started talking, and I, I take this to heart, what you just said, managing poverty. That's a very, very important, um, that's a very important statement for people to understand and retain uh, going forward. But we, you and I on the air, we've always had the ability to take on um, challenging issues that others might shy away from. And it's, it's always been a great conversation. I've gotten answers from you that I don't think I'd get from most people. I, I wonder if I'd get from any. So that's why I always, uh, always value our conversations. Chief, um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on, and I started the show this, this afternoon or today with... Uh, Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun and uh, Post Media, who was challenging uh, the Prime Minister when he yesterday said he'd be open to reviewing the, the national anthem. And the point was, do you have to say that on, on Canada Day? But then we started talking about, and Joe started talking about, and I did as well, about historic figures who have been... Um, um, I don't want to say written out of history, but Canadian history, but to some people, they are, they have been, and they, a lot of people in this country believe that they need to be written out. So I'm asking you, what is your thinking on historic figures in Canada, like the first prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, and the role they have as far as historic figures in the Canada of today and tomorrow? Yeah. Thanks, Roy. I'm going to take a three-minute journey here on, on your question. The, this country is 167 years old. I'm going to get a year off. I apologize. I 
not in memory the exact year, but we're 167 years old. And we've been through a lot in, in molding this country. But this country had at one time a mission that's different than today. You know what, Justin Trudeau or, or Stephen Harper or, you know, like, like this, this last two prime ministers with governments and, you know, provinces, like nobody today created a residential school Indian actor 60s school. We all inherited this moment. But when it comes to the history, the education system in this country set us up for this moment to have these uncomfortable debates because baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, I'm a Generation Y, Roy, and I went to a reserve school. It's no different. We were all not given the truth when it came to the relationship with Indigenous people in Canada. New Canadians today that are getting orientation into this country are not given the true relationship story yet. And so, you know, the ignorance to the truth when we talk about uh, historical, like, like John A. Macdonald, I'm going to read you a quick quote, um, and, and this may be triggering to some that are listening, so I just want to pre-warn, but I want to read you a quote that John A. Macdonald said in the House of Commons in 1879. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who could read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence, and the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they'll acquire the habits and modes of white men. You know, when I read that, Roy, not to try and trigger anybody or create debate, but let's just understand, how come when we learned about history in our country that we never realized that our first prime minister had the mandate of that, and now today we're talking five generations of Indigenous people with a relationship in this country that just want parity? And so to answer your question about, you know, the anthem and, you know, all these different... Um, Let's just understand that this country, we've got to remold ourselves right now. And, you know, our kids in the next generation have two options. They could thank us now for the tough work we're about to do together, or we could tell them, you deal with it because we don't know how. And, you know, I just want to use another country, for example, because other countries are watching us and we can watch other countries. Uh, I'm not praising New Zealand as a perfect country. They and the Maori have a tough go yet. But in the 70s, New Zealand, a Westminster country just like us, decided to stop fighting the rights holder Maori and started to work and remold the country. Canada, we have to stop digging in our heels, and it's both sides, Roy, it's Indigenous and non-Indigenous. We got to stop digging in our heels. We just got to all understand that we all have been misconceived in history to this moment. And the truth tellers are tired of telling the truth. So, Roy, my long winded answer is we just got to remold ourselves. And it's going to take a tough go because politicians need to get reelected. And this conversation may get some politicians not reelected. So, one of the drivers is government in this. Well, you know what I've said to you many times, and I've said it to you personally, that I think you should get into federal politics. <laughs> and I said to you that if you do, I will fly out to Saskatchewan, and this may do you more harm than good, <laughs> and I'll campaign for you, because I think that you are um, a young man with tremendous potential. And Chief, it's, it's an honor to speak with you. Always appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us. And a happy Canada Day weekend. Happy, happy Canada Day, right? Thank you and your audience as well. Somebody said years ago, well, Lord, give me a one-armed economist, so I'll never again hear on the other hand. But I know, I know, I know. I'll never use that one again. Um, global News Story on uh, June 30th, so Friday, will there be a recession in Canada? And uh, the first few lines, Canada's economy is showing signs of underlying strength 
As some consumers and businesses brush off recession fears, a flurry of data releases on Friday suggest. Here's the one. Here's the one I'm on run by our, our, our guest right now. Some, some economists say the door is open for the Bank of Canada to pause its rate hike cycle once again amid easing inflation concerns and an expected economic slowdown in the second half of the year, while others feel it's too soon for the central bank to declare victory. Our guest is our great friend, Professor Eric Cam, Professor at Macroeconomics at Toronto Metropolitan University. Professor Cam, great to have you with us. Happy Canada Day weekend. And uh, so what do we do? Um, hike the interest rates or no? Happy Canada Day to you, too. You know, if you don't learn from history, you're sort of doomed to repeat it. And I like your joke about the one arm economist. It's like the 10 economists in a room, you get 11 opinions. B both jokes signal the same thing to me, and no one's going to want to hear this that works for somebody um, in the private sector, which is these are the responses you get when you have a horse in the race. When you work for a bank, you work for a financial institution, you have to hedge your bet. Now, I'm no hero, but I have no horse in any race. All I care about are Canadian consumers and Canadian taxpayers. And I wish the government and I wish the Bank of Canada would stop raising rates right now. Because you can play mathematical games all you want, Roy, and you can say, oh, look, the rate of inflation is coming down. Well, that's true on a, on a big picture level. The rate of inflation is coming down from where it was, say, a year ago. But, you know, I like people to afford luxuries like food, and rent. And on those items, that's my core inflation rate. They're still going up. Food is still going up about 9% per year on average. So I frankly, I don't care if the Bank of Canada and the government point to things like the price of cell phones going down or specific goods going down. The goods that Canadians need to buy, not want to buy, need to buy to do such selfish things as house and feed and clothe their children are still going up. And so I don't understand right now why when things are so delicate, uh, we have this this jihad uh, on inflation. It is coming down. There's your signal. So slow down. The, the rate's gone from 0.25 to 4.75 in, 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 in warp speed. Let people get their feet back under them. Let people be able to afford again and then look at what you should do with the numbers. But unfortunately, Roy, the bottom line is when you go to that web page of the Bank Canada, it says we aren't going to sleep until the rate is at 2%, come hell or high water. Well, that's exactly where we're going to get to, hell or high water, very soon when they push that rate to 2% and people have to walk away from their houses. Yeah. Wasn't, and, and I'm not sure about this because I'm not an economist, but I, I try to stay up on what's going on, as you know. Wasn't it really the reducing of the cost of oil that drove um, the reduced um, interest rate in this country, the reduction uh, of inflation? And I'm just looking at this one story, that back in the Global News story. Drags from the public sector strike and a slowdown in manufacturing were offset by strength in the mining and oil and gas sectors. So that tells me that at least in part, it's government that caused much of the problem and continues to be a problem, Professor Cam, because I don't think they understand math unless the math favors their, or favors their political ambitions. Oh, I don't think the problems are in part caused by government. I think the problems are entirely caused by government. I'm never going to be the person who sits there and blames the population for having to buy things uh, for their families, Roy. The bottom line is if you open up any macroeconomic textbook, any, and there's a plethora of them, when you open up chapter one, the two most important topics you read about that drive economics in a capitalist society are opportunity cost and comparative advantage. And both mean basically the same thing. Produce what you are best at, produce what you are most efficient in producing, and then buy what you absolutely need to. But for some reason, our country, what it tries to do is flip that on its head and says, let's go out and buy the things that we don't need to buy 
and then we'll worry about the rest. And whether this is for geopolitical reasons or for handshake agreements that we don't know about, I'm not exactly sure. But we have for generations absolutely ignored the comparative advantages we have in energy, in resources, natural gas. And then so we have to make up for it in all of these other ways that are counterintuitive to a functioning economy and society. And Roy, listen, I know I'm going to be accused of being a broken record, but you couple that with the insanity of the spending and the monetary stimulus during the pandemic, and then you get where we are today. So when the people say the government is in part responsible, well, who the hell else is responsible? People that are trying to pay their mortgages and feed their kids, are they responsible? They are not responsible. They're never responsible. People react to what governments do. It's governments that take the four and they are the action people. And they really have a lot to look in the mirror right now and answer for, Roy. And it's pretty sad. I know you agree. Well, when you talk about spending money on things you don't need, how about a few hundred thousand barrels of oil we buy each day from other parts of the world? some of them with rather unsavory human rights records, questionable other records, but we buy hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil and we leave ours in the ground. And this is why I'm saying there's got to be something behind this that we don't know. There has to be handshake agreements or understandings on other things between governments that that we just don't understand or don't come to the surface because my first year students, they appeared on your show, these are they don't understand why they're learning about these things in their textbooks and being tested on them and saying, if this is basic macro 101, why does our government go in the other direction? And I'm so flustered when I have to look at my students, 500 of them asking really good questions. And my answer is, I don't know. Maybe you should ask your government, because when I ask the government, I don't get answers in return. And it's incredibly frustrating, Roy. I agree. We are where we are today because of what the government gave us on a silver platter. It's frustrating and it's 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 horrible. We're going to return to those bad old days, not the good old days, the bad old days, you know, of the 1970s and the 1980s of stagflation and staggering interest rates and people walking away from their homes. And in, in most part, these things could have been avoided by a little macroeconomic forethought. But our federal government only forethinks things like the green agenda and clean air and indigenous issues. All things I'm good on, Roy. All things that I would sign are important, but nowhere near as important as keeping a roof over your head and feeding your children. But this does not seem to be the priority of our federal government. So Vancouver and BC, they have the port strike. Vancouver is the one that is really going to impact um, our, our economy and is threatening our economy. How much of a threat? How serious is this? It's massive serious. And I think what frustrates me the most, and it's not getting enough play, is that, you know, what destroyed the economy during the pandemic was a combination of stimulus and problems with the supply chain. And we talked a lot about how that was exogenous. We couldn't fix it because it was due to Russia and the Ukraine. But now you've got supply chain problems, Canadian made. Happy Canada Day, Roy. About a quarter of our goods move through these ports on the West Coast. This will touch every aspect of our economy. This will fuel inflation. I mean, we're trying to bring inflation down. Here you go. Here's another contraindication that is going to fuel inflation. Let's do some quick math because I know you like math. It's about $800 million in goods that move through those ports every day. So if that sucker lasts a week, you're talking $5.5 billion in goods. That can do nothing other than take that supply curve and shove it left again and raise the prices of those goods. And remember, we're talking about British Columbia. This is not going to affect just BC. This is all of Canada, because what's the major trading partner whose goods come into that port? It's China. China sends us most of our imports. And this just has a recipe for disaster again. And there's only one way to fix this, Government of Canada, settle this strike before it raises the prices of goods and services that people buy yet again, Roy. You know, it gets it gets so boring in a sense, keeping saying the same thing every week. We are we are making these problems for ourselves. We're making them worse to ourselves. And now you can't blame Russia. And you can't blame the Ukraine. If this happens, this is a Canadian-made supply chain mess. And it brings us full circle to what we started talking about. And you pointed out it's the 
average person, if there is such a thing anymore, but it's the person who's trying to feed the kids, pay for the rent or the mortgage, buy the clothes, put the gas in the car so they can get to where they're going. That's the person who's going to be hurt most quickly. Yeah, and let me let you in on a little secret. It always is. It always is. No matter what economists, no matter what government people tell you, people that are at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale get hit by everything first and everything hardest. The super wealthy are not terribly concerned about very much, and frankly, nor should they be. But that's what gets lost in all of this, is we talk about these numbers and we talk yeah. about math yeah. and demographics. And I know that we have to go, Roy, but... Remember, economics is a social science and it's about people. Unemployed people don't make money. People that are stuck in a supply chain end up paying more money for goods. It is always the disposable income of those who can least afford it that gets hurt the most. And it can bring tears to your eyes when it's your own country facilitating the problems. Professor Cam, I always appreciate it. As you know, thanks so much for the time today. It's an honor. Stay healthy, Roy. You too, Professor Eric Cam. And you know, one of the things that we've... Uh, really been finding out is more and more people living in their vehicles. We heard yesterday from a listener in Toronto living in her car. So we're going to be doing a little bit of an investigative look into that over the next number of days. I'll have something on the air for you, hopefully by next weekend. So I received this, uh, this commentary from Ken, who is a loyal listener to this program in Alberta. I don't have permission from him to use his last name. But he has sent me quite a few very interesting commentaries. And this followed our interview yesterday with Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party. And Ken looks at both Mr. Polyev and uh, Justin Trudeau. He writes, uh, Dear Sir, I hope you're feeling better. You sound strong. I hope you continue on your recovery. Thank you, Ken. To the point of the missive, is Canada at risk? And sadly, I will say yes, for a couple of reasons. Mr. Trudeau has enabled those in his inner circle to dismantle the core values and the excellent support cast that were once surrounding the office of prime minister. And Mr. Polyev has all of his sharp words pointed at Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Trudeau alone. On multiple occasions in your interview with Mr. Polyev this afternoon, the express target of his vitriol was Mr. Trudeau. Our current prime minister may have been raised in an educational environment that exuded external affairs, but taking in that education may not have been his strong suit. There are a number of well-lined pockets within the ranks of those in close proximity to our current prime minister, and not all of those individuals are exempt from availing themselves of opportunity. Mr. Polyev, in only having a single shot in his arsenal, will likely miss some or all of the target. And as a result, he's left me quite concerned with a winner-takes-all attitude instead of winners-we-all-could-be-philosophy. Canada is likely to become much more like the UN, separate on many issues, but fiercely independent individual provinces or collective groups— of provinces, the Atlantic, Quebec, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, B.C., and Manitoba. But Manitoba with much less presence. Just my observation, kind sir. It's very thoughtful. It's very thoughtful. And so I, t I talked with a number of people. I exchanged some emails about uh, Pierre Polyev's appearance on this program yesterday. And these are people who generally have had enough of the current administration, and were not particularly fond of the two previous leaders of the Conservative Party, and looked to Pierre Polyev for a new way of presenting the party to Canada. They are now telling me, these are personal opinions, this is not any study of any kind, they're just sharing personal opinions with me. They're saying, well, his message is starting to be a little difficult to put up with. And they're saying that for the very same, in the same, very same vein that Ken's editorial comment was written. It's the same message each and every time. It's immediately Justin Trudeau's problem. Well, it may be, but after a while, people begin to tune out if you just say the same thing over and over and over. I think Pierre Polyev has a 
tremendous opportunity in front of him, a tremendous opportunity to connect with Canadians, and the polling is showing that he's doing that increasingly. But take advantage of the opportunity that's in front of you. Take advantage of the fact that people are listening to you and diversify your message. It's just a suggestion. So last weekend, when Prigozhin's Wagner Group started to move toward Moscow, the statement was, well, Prigozhin will be in Moscow in two days. So what, what's going on there, and, and how do we interpret what the situation is? And uh, we're, I'm, I'm glad again to be speaking with Dr. Anders Asland. He was uh, economic advisor to both Russia and Ukraine, not at the same time, obviously, his book is Russia's Crony Capitalism, and it's a great read. And there's so much going on in, uh, in, that, in those two countries. And uh, they, it all impacts on all of us. It all impacts on all of us. I just want to read you this. This is from a, a poll in Ukraine. Now, put it into Canadian context. If this were us, 78% of Ukrainians have close relatives or friends who were wounded or killed due to the full-scale Russian invasion. It was the Kiev International Institute of Sociology that conducted this poll. The figure ranges from 70% in Ukraine's east to 80% in the country's western region. And um, I'll, there's some more information here that I am going to share with you a little bit later. I just can't find it right now. Oh, on, on average, the survey respondents had seven family members or friends who fell victim to Russia's war since February 24, 2022. Dr. Anders Asland is with us. And um, his, again, his book is, uh, is amazing, Russia's Crony Capitalism. Anders, thank you so much. Uh, th those numbers are staggering, aren't they? Thank you very much, Roy. Yeah, I was just uh, in London for this uh, huge uh, Ukraine recovery uh, conference, and uh, you do feel it now. Every Ukrainian you meet uh, has uh, somebody rather close to them who has suffered in the war, either being killed or uh, been seriously injured. How does a, how does a country, and, and how do these, and you know these countries so well, how do they recover from this? Putin has to go, right? Yeah, I would put it positively. Uh, the Professor Charles Tilly had coined this phrase, nations are born through war. And what we are seeing now is that the Ukrainians are in no way being cowed or repressed. On the contrary, they are standing up and saying, we have to defeat the Russians. We have to take all our territory and all our people back because this is an existential issue for us. The Russians are, whom I meet, are in denial. Uh, so I am declared persona non grata in uh, Russia now, so I can't go there uh, any longer. But uh, I was in uh, Ukraine last in uh, three months uh, ago, and the Ukrainians are adamant, and you can feel that they have the right morale, and the Russians have no morale. But strangely, they keep uh, just uh, fighting because they are giving order from above. So Ukraine is uh, driven from below. People know what they stand for. Russia is driven from above. How did you see last weekend when Prigozhin, formerly Putin's chef, that was what he was originally known as, formed the Wagner Group? Uh, and that Wagner Group, when it was, it, it, I mean, they just drove into Russia. They essentially took over the city of Rostov-on-Dom, and they were welcomed by the population. And they started to proceed down the highway to Moscow at rapid speed. They were fired on by uh, Russian helicopters. They shot down the helicopters. How did how did you how do you assess what happened? Well, Roy, as you, you point out, this was really quite uh, extraordinary. And what is coming out? That is that uh, Prigozhin and the Wagnerites must have had substantial support within uh, the Russian military and the Russian intelligence uh, service, uh, uh, GRU, and who stood against them. 
the National Guard, uh, the Presidential uh, Guard of Putin, and um, the FSB, that is the old KGB. So this suggests that there is a serious division within uh, the, the Russian security forces. And I think that is what we should focus on for the future, although we know very little uh, about it, that uh, Putin can't trust his forces. Could there be civil war in Russia? I doubt it, but it's, it is a poss possibility. Uh, what we saw now was that uh, Prigozhin decided uh, not to fight, and he came within 200 kilometers uh, yeah. uh, from Moscow, 120 miles. And um, in one day, his uh, troops, perhaps 10,000 troops, uh, uh, marched or rather drove fast on the highways, uh, 800 kilometers. So it's extraordinary that uh, uh, Russia is so undefended. And the reason is that 90% uh, of the Russian uh, conventional forces are in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, do you do you see Putin uh, staying on under any circumstance? I, I mean, I, you know so much more than I do, but I, I'm looking at his, the people, and, you know, your book, Russia's Crony Capitalism, it's, it's people who've grown immensely wealthy and they've helped each other out. It's just a, like a an old boys club and uh, they become billionaires but their yachts have been uh, have been confiscated their accounts have been frozen their assets have been uh, also frozen by international governments their economy is suffering the billionaires are losing lots of money are they are, are, i mean the generals the young generals are probably are probably against him and that's why they didn't the army wasn't on the on that highway to stop him um but but does he have too many too many enemies now to survive? Yeah, or I would rather say that he has too little support uh, 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 to uh, to survive. So I think that uh, Putin is really out of it, and he has made so many things that are negative now. Uh, for, for the last uh, well, since uh, COVID struck, he has essentially isolated himself. Anybody who wants to see Putin needs to be uh, in quarantine one or two weeks. And um, it means that he is, sees very few people. Uh, he holds a um, Security Council meeting with the 12 most important uh, people uh, about every 10th day. But this year he has not had one of these Security Council meetings in person, but uh, just on a video. And there are no strong rumors that uh, Putin operates with uh, uh, one or two doubles because uh, on the 22nd of June, he had the mishap that he had two meetings at the same time. And uh, one person is not supposed to have two meetings at the same time in different places. And I, and I read that on your Twitter feed at Anders underscore Aslan. I read that earlier today. Economically, how badly off is Russia? Uh, this is, you can say, the strong point. Uh, last year, Russia's GDP officially fell by 2%, perhaps slightly more, but not much. And think of Ukraine's GDP falling by 29%, and that doesn't break Ukraine. This year, the expectation is that uh, it might fall by another 2%, perhaps uh, 4%. What is more important is that Russia's economy can't expand because it can't get uh, financing. And uh, uh, the Western uh, technology sanctions are quite uh, severe. So Russia's problem producing um, uh, serious uh, 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 missiles. When I was in Western Ukraine in late March, I happened to see one of these uh, cruise missiles that the Russians had hit uh, this uh, power station I visited. And uh, to my surprise, I saw that uh, the wing of this modern cruise missile produced last year was made out of plywood. Oh, but the point is that it hit its target. Anders, can you just take us back into um, the, the story of um, 
what's going on in, in Russia. With the title of your book, Russia's Crony Capitalism, what's the, um, what's the fundamentals? What are the fundamentals here? The fundamentals is money, state money that is being distributed to rather few people. Uh, today, uh, the Russian TV has announced that uh, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, the owner of the Wagner uh, uh, mercenary company, has uh, received $19 billion in state orders, probably more because this is given in rubles uh, uh, and the exchange rate has uh, fallen uh, in recent years. So he has got an enormous amount of money from the state. And uh, for this, he has financed uh, all kinds of military services and uh, uh, disinformation services uh, to, to the state. But he has also made money. And one of his strongest connections, here we come to the crony capitalism uh, part, is uh, Gen uh, Gennady Timchenko, who's one of Putin's closest cronies from St. Petersburg. Uh, Timchenko has thanks to Pr uh, Prigozhin and General Sorovikin, uh, Prigozhin's strongest uh, uh, person in the military who apparently now have be, has been arrested. Uh, and uh, they have together, these three not-so-gentlemen, uh, taken over oil, gas, fertilizers in Syria and made big money on it. It belongs to Timchenko, but both Sorovikin and the Prigozhin have made big money on it. And this uh, weakens Putin because uh, Timchenko is the richest uh, person around him. So it's an organized crime unit. Exactly. And uh, things will not end well um, in that situation. No. They will not end well. Not the way they, they expected them. Now, you, were in, you said you were in Ukraine in March. How do you see uh, Ukraine developing? First of all, do you think they will win this militarily? And, First and, all, they, they will win. And we are now seeing that the Ukrainians are probing in three or four uh, places. And the question is not if, but when they will get uh, uh, a breakthrough. The big complaint is that they don't have uh, air uh, uh, power. Mm -hmm. They do have airplanes that are flying each day, but they are not as good as the Russian or many as the Russian airplanes. So the big complaint is that they have not got uh, F-16 or any similar airplanes. But the Ukrainians have a completely different morale. And Ukraine today has uh, one million men and women under, under arms. So I think they will win. That's a huge military, and a military that's tremendously motivated, as you said. If they get the F-16s, which is still a very viable um, platform, then, uh, then they will, if they don't dominate the sky, they'll come close to it. Yeah, and as it is now, fortunately, they have HIMARS and a few other long-distance um, uh, missiles that can take out the Russian uh, arms and uh, diesel vehicles. Where will we be, the world, a year from now, when we look at Russia and we look at Ukraine, what, what will we see? Uh, of course, this can only be guesses. Sure. I think that Ukraine will win uh, within a, uh, a year. Uh, by win, I mean that they will defeat Russia, not only in the territories uh, that uh, Russia has taken after the uh, February last year, but uh, also Crimea and uh, uh, Eastern Ukraine that we're talking to 2014. Ukraine needs Crimea in order to uh, secure uh, its um, shipping through through the uh, the Black Sea, and uh, we will see a vibrant um, democracy and uh, uh, in Ukraine, and Ukraine will be on its way uh, to to join the European Union within several years, not fast. Uh, in Russia, I would expect that Putin will fall and what will happen afterwards is anybody prediction. I think that power will fall into the street and we will see who picks it up.
And they've got all those nukes. Do you think uh, Putin will, in desperation, start to uh, at least use some battlefield nukes? I don't think so at all. I think that anybody who uses nukes uh, loses. I think this was a mistake that uh, Secretary of State Jim Baker did in '92, that he was completely focused on nukes, that the nukes should be secured to Russia. If Ukraine had had all the nukes it had then, this war would never have happened. Uh, one one more point. Um, when I was interviewing a, a Ukrainian guest, maybe a, a year ago, when they were starting to really push the Russians backwards, he said to me that he'd spoken with a Ukrainian commander, and the Ukrainian commander said, when we get to the Russian border, we just might not stop. What do you think? I think that's very likely. And since... Uh, the Ukrainians now have several thousand Russian uh, volunteer uh, soldiers under uh, their, their control. It, uh, they can simply let the Russians uh, go. Uh, and we saw now how easily uh, the Wagner troops uh, were marching on Moscow. There is no defense on the Russian side. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.